Want me on the podcast? No. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Vacation Impossible podcast for Thursday, March 1st. I'm currently on the Carnival Splendor and we are sailing back to Long Beach from Puerto Vallarta. So we're on the Mexican Riviera cruise. It's a seven-day out of Long Beach that went to uh, Cabo San Lucas, Mazatlan, and Puerto Vallarta. And so it's been a pretty exciting trip so far. Um, we had some challenges getting out of Vancouver because of a uh, snowstorm. And so Sam and I were flying separately and both of our flights were delayed in the neighborhood of two hours by the snow. And that was the day prior to the cruise. And then the day of the cruise, Isabella and Glenn were joining us and they had a similar delay such that they didn't get to the ship until around 3, 3.30. So uh, they were really cutting it close. So it's a good reminder about uh, the risks involved. If you want to fly in to a cruise the day of the cruise, uh, there's a huge risk there, particularly if you're doing, doing that in the winter months. But I mean, it's more than just weather that can disrupt your travel plans. And so that's just something to consider. But so far, we were fortunate this time. Everyone made it to the ship on time, and we've been having a pretty awesome trip so far. Uh, in Cabo San Lucas, I went and did my own uh, excursion where I finally got to go see Land's End. So that's um, uh, that was great. Uh, it was a three-part excursion where you go on the boat, and then uh, they, there's also some shopping, and then you get an hour to beach uh, with uh, some light lunch and a drink. And so I enjoyed that quite thoroughly. Uh, I would happily do that again. Uh, got some really good footage of that uh, particular excursion, so that's fantastic. Then for Mazatlan, Sam and I both returned to El Cid Marina, which we had been to a couple of years ago when we were on the Miracle. And so we didn't do any parasailing this time, but we did discover at El Cid Marina, when you take the water taxi across to the other side of the resort, there are two main pool areas, not just one. And so if you walk beyond the first main pool area where they have the swim-up bar, there's a second uh, pool area that has a grotto and some waterfalls, and uh, that's, that's, that was a lot of fun. So we spent pretty much the whole time there. Uh, and of course, all-inclusive drinks, but we didn't get the inclusive meal, and that was fine because we ate when we got back on the ship. So uh, that's sort of the basics of what's going on. We did just have some excitement here on the Carnival Splendor as we were sailing back because we were having um, brunch in the Gold Pearl restaurant at the back of the ship when I believe what happened was the right engine failed temporarily because the ship suddenly um, listed strong to starboard so the starboard side of the ship took a dip while the port side went up. Our glasses and cutlery all started to slide off the table. We were able to protect it all, but other people at other tables and also the unoccupied tables weren't so lucky. We heard a lot of glass breaking. Uh, so we were able to catch everything and didn't even make a mess at our table. Uh, the waiter was standing there and I, I turned to him. And I said, look, we've got this. If there's another table you need to go see to, you know, go ahead. We're fine. Um, and he casually strolled away. So you know, obviously it was an emergency. Nobody was panicking. But, I mean, you've seen videos probably on YouTube and other places of ships um, tilting due to an engine failure. And so that was kind of interesting. So it tilted, and uh, then they cut the engines all together. So we coasted for a bit, and then eventually they restarted the engines, and uh, uh, it seems like everything's working fine. We're currently traveling at 18 knots. So hopefully there's been no announcement about what happened whatsoever. So... Uh, I'm hoping that the engines and everything is fine. Uh, on the off chance that it's not... 
Um, one thing that happened about 10 minutes after it, we smelled what smelled like sewage when we were in the restaurant. It was only for a couple of moments, but then you start getting these, uh, these images in your head of what happened to the triumph back in like 2013 or whatever. And so, um, the first thing I did uh, leaving the restaurant was use a bathroom because you don't know, like if there's problems, when's your next chance going to be? Uh, and then we came back to the cabin because I was worried that maybe my camera or some of my equipment might have, you know, rolled off of wherever it was, off of the table or what have you, and everything was fine. Um, but still, just thinking about those stories from the Triumph from years ago, I took my solar backpack charger and uh, put it out on the balcony and secured it so that it's getting a charge off the sun just in case we have some sort of power issue. And that's another reason that I'm recording this podcast now rather than later. We were possibly going to be having Glenn or Isabella or perhaps both be our guest, but uh, with the ship's condition uncertain and no message from the crew about what's going on, uh, I kind of wanted to get this in the can before something possibly got in the way of us recording a podcast because it has been a while. Um, and, you know, we had wanted to record a podcast in February for John Con, which is, uh, you know, in Victoria, B.C., John's birthday. He gets a he gets a space and he has people over and it's like a, this long weekend of of uh, retro gaming and board games. Uh, and, and those sorts of festivities, which is a lot of fun. And we, we enjoy going over to Victoria for that. But um, unfortunately, he, was, he, uh, he and his wife both fell sick at that time. Um, so thankfully, they were able to let everyone know in advance that we were able to cancel our hotel reservations. Uh, but John Con is back on. And so we're going to be looking at, uh, I think, the third week of March. Got a new hotel booked. So um, we're hopefully going to be doing another podcast there. So hopefully this March we'll see two podcasts uh, coming out. So we can, uh, you know, hopefully get caught up on, on just a lot of the stuff we have to talk about because there's a lot been going on sort of in the travel and cruising world. And we've got a lot of topics I want to get to. I want to talk about how much cruises cost. I want to talk about which side of the ship is best to book. Uh, we're going to be talking about some Facebook stuff, kids running around the ship, the role of security, bunch of bunch of interesting topics for this podcast. And so uh, we'll see how far we can get and um, and then save the rest for later in March. So just what's going on uh, with our travel plans right now. We've got a June cruise coming up that we are sailing out of Tampa on the Miracle, going to Cozumel, Grand Cayman, uh, Mahogany Bay, and I believe Belize. So we're looking forward to hopefully um, being able to do some cave tubing in Belize. So uh, I, I've wanted to do that, and uh, Mindy is wanting to go uh, do a, a, an unofficial sloth excursion in Mahogany Bay. So uh, that's going to be a very exciting trip. Uh, however, we are waiting on word from the Mario Marathon because it seems that uh, the Mario Marathon for 2018 has been confirmed, so the Mario Marathon will be back. We also know and can confirm that it will be hosted at Jed's house again. Uh, and given the fact that we know these things, I think it's a safe bet that I and perhaps more of our team have been invited to join. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to the, hopefully the possibility of being able to go back. However, um, we don't, they haven't settled on the dates yet. So while the event and the location is confirmed, the dates have not been confirmed. And this is going to have a domino effect on the rest of our travel year, uh, because how it, um, lines up with the cruise on the Miracle uh, we might be going there first or after. It could be like part of one epic multi-part trip. They could be separate trips. Uh, we, If it totally lines up with the cruise um, and conflicts with the cruise, then we might not be able to do it at all. 
And so that would be really unfortunate. And hopefully that won't be the way that it plays out. But of course, you know, we're, we're sort of the junior members of the group. So we don't have any expectations that they would adjust their schedule to accommodate us. But they've been really open and listening to uh, our availability. And so that's really quite nice. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we really hope and we really want to contribute as much as possible to the event. But ultimately, they have a lot of different priorities they need to balance. And we completely understand that. So um, that's sort of our future, future travel plans right now. Uh, there has been an interesting announcement made from Carnival with regards to this ship, the Splendor, and the Long Beach port. The Splendor is set in 2019 to be relocated, repositioned to Australia. So this is my first time on this ship, but it could also be my last. Um, depending. Australia is very expensive. I would love to go to Australia, and it's on our bucket list Certainly, but the flights are very expensive, or if we were to take a, a repositioning cruise there, that's a long period of time, and it's also very pricey. So while those would be wonderful, and we're definitely considering those possibilities, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Uh, and so in all likelihood, this is going to be uh, our last time on the Splendor for at least until it comes back to North America, or we finally make our way to Australia, which could take quite a while. Uh, so that's an interesting piece of news, particularly given that the Splendor is a unique ship. It's the only one of her class. She's kind of a hybrid between a Conquest and a Dream class, and it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Having sailed on quite a few of both of those, it, it, it's a little weird. Sometimes I feel like I'm on, you know, the glory, and sometimes I feel like I'm on the, you know, the, the, the breeze of the dream. Uh, it works though. It's a, it's a pretty good ship, but I do find that the, uh, lineups can be somewhat substantial. And I've heard this criticism of, of this, and I think some other ships that the amenity to passenger ratio isn't fantastic. And so I have experienced that a little bit. It hasn't been that bad, um, but I, I have been a little bit more aware of it, um, you know, than on some other cruises. So, uh, yeah, you might be in line for the, at the bar for longer than you'd expect for the pizza place for food. Um, this ship doesn't have a Guy's Burgers, and so it's nice because they have off the grill, so you can get your cheese fries, which when there's a Guy's Burgers, you, that's not really an option. Uh, and so that's that that is nice as much as I think guys make superior burgers um, There's 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 things to enjoy about both which is one of the wonderful things about having a variety of options, but um, Yeah, so I, I you know the the comedy club fills up uh, pretty quickly And so basically my advice is if you are on the splendor um, You know give yourself extra time for anything that you plan or want to do because you probably will be waiting a little bit longer than you might otherwise on a different ship um, so it's a little unfortunate that North America is going to be missing out on this one-of-a-kind ship going forward. Uh, but Burton's been on her. This is uh, Sam's second time on her. I've gotten a chance. And, of course, Glenn and Isabella are with us, too. So, um, you know, it's nice that a lot of people did get a chance. The exciting news for Long Beach, though, is that Carnival's newest ship, the Panorama, which on our last podcast we announced the name of, we can now announce, is going to Long Beach. It's going to be Long Beach. It's going to be the home port, which is sort of a dream come true because when the new ships come you know they launch out of barcelona generally they they do some mediterranean cruises for like six months or so then they do this wonderful transatlantic where they go from barcelona to new york which i would absolutely love to do um but again there's some serious cost associated with that but uh then it goes to new york they normally do like one or two sailings out of new york then they reposition down to miami and they're there until the next new ship comes along. And then maybe they'll get repositioned to Galveston. But that seems to be about as far west as the new ships have been going in the last five years or so. So the fact that the Panorama, the new Vista-class ship that's going to be launching next year in 2019, is coming to Long Beach is very exciting for us West Coast cruisers. Because 
the flight cost, for one thing, to get to this ship is drastically reduced. Now, we talked about, and you've probably heard about, the, the Long Beach Pier has been uh, undergoing upgrades at their port. And it's been doing this to accommodate a larger vessel. So we were all hoping that this meant a larger, a larger vessel. Now, the Splendor came over uh, in a swap with the Miracle, because the Miracle used to be doing the sailing. And so, okay, was, was that what they meant? Um, or were we maybe, fingers crossed, going to get a dream? Uh, I think when we were thinking and asking honestly, um, you know, hey, we would love to see a Vista class come to the West Coast. I don't think we realistically thought that that was going to happen. And so the fact that they made this announcement is great news because we are going to be getting a top of the line, the newest best ship from the, you know, the new in size standpoint uh, is coming to Long Beach, Los Angeles area, California, the West Coast, North America. We're really excited. We're going to try and prioritize sailing on her as soon as we can in 2019. There's going to be a lot of different factors involved, of course. Perhaps a Mario Marathon 19 we might need to coordinate with. Um, but we're really excited about this possibility. And so um, that I think it's fantastic news. And we're going to try and get ourselves on the panorama as fast as we can and give you guys hopefully an early look into that ship out of Long Beach. Long Beach has done some amazing upgrades in their dome, uh, which is their, their sort of port pier waiting area, is really quite lovely. It's um, it's almost like a Central Park, New York style. I've never been to New York City or Central Park there, but it, it, it has a kind of vibe from what you see in movies and other art forms, television shows, what have you. Uh, so they have lots of benches, lots of seating. And uh, it's a bit more of a walk to get to your ship now, though, but the, the walking areas... It's clearly so they have queuing space for a larger vessel. Um, and it's it's substantial. And so you're walking through it and you're reminded of walking through the ports of like Miami and other, you know, large ports. And so, you know, you can kind of see, yeah, they've been laying uh, groundwork for this sort of thing. Uh, and that's uh, that's absolutely fantastic. So um, we're we're really excited about that. So one thing that we're really often asked is, how much do cruises truly cost? And that's a fantastic question, because if you're trying to make a sound decision about where you want to spend your limited travel time and dollars, you need to understand, I think, the costs involved. So um, high level, the obvious component costs of a cruise vacation, uh, assuming you don't live in a port city, is flight, hotel, transportation, and then the cruise itself. On top of the cruise itself, there's obviously souvenirs and, you know, drinks and, and other things you might want to buy that aren't included that we've covered previously in the podcast and in another clip. But um, what are the core components? And so flight is an important part. So, you know, if you're in Vancouver, where we're based, flying to L.A., you can do round trip in the neighborhood of 300, where to the East Coast, we're looking at five to 600. So that's a component price that you need to figure out for yourself, of course. And then I mentioned a hotel. We do strongly recommend you fly in at least the night before your cruise and have a one-night stay in a hotel near the cruise, if at all possible, or near the, ho or near the airport, uh, so that you don't risk travel disruptions and impacting your ability to get onto the ship in time. As well, um, it's, it's, it's less stressful, which is important. And so you're able to get onto the ship and have a nice night's sleep beforehand and relax. And uh, so that's something that we recommend. But that, again, it depends on your location. If you don't have far to go to get to the port, maybe that's less of a priority. Um, but if you are flying, regardless of the hotel stay, transportation, what do I mean by that? I'm talking like an airport shuttle. So depending on where you are at, there's a variety of different ways that you can uh, get from the airport to the cruise ship terminal. 
and the economy of the economics of each option is different depending on your port. So for example, what's the cheapest way to get from LAX airport to Long Beach Pier? We've looked into it, we've checked all the prices. Here's the rundown. Taxis are very expensive, I do not recommend them. Uber and Lyft is also quite a bit more expensive than an airport shuttle. So the shuttles that you want to look at, we've looked at a variety of them. There's two particular ones out of LAX that'll take you to Long Beach that you're going to want to look into. Their prices are very competitive with each other. Primetime shuttle and super shuttle. Primetime is the red van, super shuttle's the blue van. They normally are within like a dollar of each other. So for the last few years, primetime shuttle had been about a dollar cheaper per person each way than, uh, than super shuttle. But this time super shuttle was cheaper by about 40 cents per person each way. They both provide a very similar level of service and so they're pretty interchangeable. So I recommend going with whatever one happens to be cheaper for you. Now an important point is if you're not coming directly from the airport, if you're staying at an airport hotel for example, then what you're going to want to do is find a hotel that has a free airport shuttle. So they'll pick you up from LAX, bring you to the hotel, you spend your night there, and then you take the free shuttle back to LAX. Why would you do this? For example, uh, with Super Shuttle on this trip, if we had the shuttle pick us up from the hotel and bring us to the Long Beach Pier, it would have been about $45. By having the shuttle pick us up at the airport, where they pick up a lot of people, so there's economies of scale for the business, by picking us up at the airport and taking us to the port, it was $16. Huge savings there. It is well worth the time. A lot of the LAX hotels are within 4 to 10 minute shuttle range of the airport. Those shuttles generally run very frequently. It's a very smooth and easy process. Things are well marked when you leave baggage claim from LAX. So I highly, highly recommend that to get from the LAX airport to the Long Beach Pier, you consider staying in a hotel, and if it's near LAX, get a free airport shuttle and take either primetime shuttle or super shuttle from the airport to the pier for maximum savings. And frankly, it's a comfortable ride. There are professional people, they might make some stops along the way, so it's not the fastest, but any delay is minimal. So you're looking at about a 20 to 30 minute uh, ride from the uh, LAX shuttle pickup to the pier to give you an idea of uh, the time frame involved. Uh, now there might also be another 10, 20 minute maximum wait for a shuttle depending on when you arrive. Um, but that's how we recommend you do it. And so if you're doing that, if you're staying at an LAX area hotel and you're taking that shuttle back, they're going to ask you what airline are you flying out of? Are you flying international, domestic, whatever? They are, in my, in my experience, they, they have seen people do what we do quite a bit and so I'll just say I'm transferring to another shuttle I'll get off at the first stop that you make and that's what you should probably do and then just look for the super shuttle or the primetime shuttle sign uh, and hopefully there'll be staff there that you can check in with you can check in um, through phoning text message I believe in their apps um, but that is the smartest way to get from LAX to the pier primetime shuttle or super shuttle worth checking out I highly recommend those services they do a very professional job so that's one of the costs you need to factor in your transportation from the airport. For example, if you are flying into Houston to sail out of Galveston, there is the Galveston Express shuttle is generally um, maybe 10 to $20 cheaper than the Carnival shuttle. They are way cheaper than taxis, Uber and Lyft in that city. So that's what I recommend. Now, if you are in a Florida port, so we're talking Jacksonville, Tampa, Orlando, 
Um, Miami, of course. Miami's the big one. It's the world's largest cruise port. For those, getting there from the airport, it depends on the number of people in your party. So you're going to want to go to a taxi fare calculator on the internet to figure out what a taxi would cost and then compare it to a similar calculator for Uber and Lyft. And depending on the number of people in your party, uh, it may or may not be cheaper to go one way or the other. But generally speaking, Uber and Lyft are cheaper when you're in Florida. So that's how you get from the Miami airport, for example, to the Miami port. Uber and Lyft, generally cheaper, but also maybe just quickly know what the estimated taxi price would be so you can make an informed judgment there. Um, those are our recommendations for those ports. So what's the cost of cruising? You've got your flight, potentially, your hotel, potentially, your transportation from the airport to the port. Now let's talk cruises. How much do cruises cost? So uh, we've been on a wide variety of cruises and we have an affordability threshold so that we know if we think we're getting a fair deal or not. And the best way to know and search for that is to look at the cruise rate because when you go on the carnival.com website and you do a search for cruises, it'll sort them by price, which is lovely. Uh, that price is the cruise rate only. That's before port fees, taxes, and those sorts of things. Gratuities is important as well. It's, it's prior to those costs, but that's how you compare them all on one screen without having to go in and make you know fake bookings here and there to see all the different taxes and fees. So we look at cruise rate only uh, because it's an easy tool of comparison. So what do we consider affordable? The first cruise I took with Burton, I didn't know anything. Burton was running the show. He was educating me on the whole cruise thing. And so he booked the four-day sale in the Carnival Inspiration, and it was during spring break. And so that drove the cost up substantially. So uh, it was a four-day cruise. This was in 2013, March 2013. And so per person, it was $537, which worked out to about $134 per person per day for a total of $1,075. That is the most expensive cruise we've ever taken when you look at it as a per day um, price, per person, per day. So I use that as sort of our threshold. The cruise rate only on that worked out to $122 per day. Now, if you think about it, uh, you stay at a nice Hilton property, you know, $122 as a base rate, it's a little on the higher end, but it's still, it's okay. That's about what we paid when we stayed at the Hilton Riverside in our uh, New Orleans. So that's sort of our threshold. So if the per person per day cruise rate only price is $122 or less, then we, we're willing to do it. If it's above that, it's too expensive for what we're wanting to do. So that works out to... For example, a four-day cruise, you're going to want it to be less than $488 per person, cruise rate only. And that's the price you'll see when you do a search on Carnival.com. And so it just goes up from there. $610 is the most we'll spend for on a five-day. Uh, $854 is the most we do for a seven-day. $976 is the most we'll do for an eight-day. Things like that. So that gives you an idea from a searching standpoint, am I getting a fair price? Now... Oftentimes, depending on the browser and how you're searching, if you're on mobile, I don't think you'll see it, uh, the Carnival site will, at certain screens, show you like the daily rate per person. And so anything under $100 per day is really pretty good. And if you start seeing like less than 90 less than 80 if it's less than 80 that is a fantastic rate. 
And that's what I would like. That is, that's when you know you're getting a really good price. And it's important to look at it per person per day because that's sort of really what you're paying. Because otherwise, you're only ever going to take four-day cruises because the price of the whole cruise is going to look intimidating. But it might not be the best value. If you're on an eight-day for less than double a four-day, then your daily rate is lower. You're getting a better deal. You need to look at it that way. Don't play the game of being intimidated or enticed by that price for the whole cruise. Um, because it's not going to be an accurate reflection necessarily of the value you're getting. Just looking at some of the cruises we've taken, obviously cruise rate only, the cheapest one we ever did was the $24 cruise. Um, and that was me going solo. So, you know, that was a per person per day. Had someone come with me, it would have been $12 probably per person because when you're single occupant, you pay as if there was a second person there. So uh, that was obviously the cheapest that, that I ever had, um, but that was due to a website glitch. Uh, a couple of people have contacted us recently. They've watched some of our videos uh, that I filmed on the $24 cruise, and they said, where can I get my $24 cruise? It was a glitch. The fact was Sam was watching their website diligently, and he saw this amazing price come up, and he told me right away. I booked it right away, and I, was screen I took a screenshot of every step in the process. So when it came time for final payment and everything to be sorted, because I made the final payment, and then afterwards I got an email saying I owed them more money. And I said, no, no, no. And I called them up and they said, well, you know, uh, we, we have no way of verifying that. And I said, actually, you do. I have screenshots. Uh, and so I got the email of the person I was talking to at Carnival. And I said, can I just email you the screenshots? I did. They checked with their supervisor. It took five minutes and they verified I had fully paid. So that's an unusual one. Um, and so that's, that's, that, that, that's uh, not something that you should really expect. So per person per day, if you want to talk all in with everything paid for in terms of your taxes and port fees, but not your gratuities, gratuity, we're, we're leaving out of this conversation. Um, the most we've paid per person per day came out to $134. That was that first cruise. So obviously the lowest was the $24 cruise. After port fees and everything, it was $28 per person. Uh, and... Uh, that's per day because there were port fees that were well above the $24. So it was $28 per person per day. So that's the cheapest. The cheapest we've done without a website glitch was uh, $66, but we had a discount from a previous cruise that had been interrupted. So that might not be uh, an accurate reflection of the price because we had a 20% off because we, uh, we missed a port um, going to Jamaica on an earlier trip. So without a special discount, the cheapest cruise we did with the taxes and fees included was $77. That was a seven-day cruise on the Carnival Glory. So uh, just to give you a range of what the total all-in cost was on cruises that we've taken, they've ranged anywhere from the $24 cruise was actually $112 with everything but gratuities included. The most expensive we've ever done was $4,279. That was the sunshine, but that was for two cabins. So that was that was for four people in two cabins. So really, you need to divide that by two. That's $2,140. That was not our most expensive cruise um, from that standpoint. So uh, really, it was the Hawaii cruise. Uh, that you know, it was one cabin, three people, $3,332 including everything except gratuities. That was a 10-day sale, though. 
you divide that by 10 days, divide it by the number of people, and it actually becomes a really uh, cost-effective uh, thing. So anyways, we've got a lot of people asking us, what do cruises cost? We just wanted to throw out some, some amounts there. So basically, um, anything from like $77 per person per day up to 135 is sort of our reasonable range. And so you can multiply by the number of people and how long your trip is to kind of figure out if you think you're getting a fair deal as Vacation Impossible would sort of certify it. So that is how much do cruises cost? So uh, another question that we've heard here and there is which side of the ship is best? And that's interesting because our approach has been we're just happy being on a ship. So, you know, interior, ocean view, porthole, balcony. We're happy to be on the ship. Balcony is by far the best, of course, if you can afford it. It's interesting because we hadn't really paid a lot of attention to whether we're port and starboard versus, you know, the fact that we need to know where our cabin is. But beyond that, we haven't paid a lot of attention. So I've recently got a personal vacation planner. His name is Raymond, and so far he's been delightful, if you're looking for someone. Um, he called me up because Sam had been checking some things on the website while he was logged in, and uh, Carnival knows I'm a, a frequent traveling companion of his, and so when they tried calling him and couldn't reach him, they called me. And that's how I got myself a personal vacation planner. So, you know, for cruise number 18, I finally got someone helping me. Uh, so I'll going forward, I'll let you know if I see the benefits or drawbacks to it. So far, it didn't really seem to make too much of a difference. Um, so anyways, I asked the personal vacation planner what side of the ship, and uh, he says that the port side often faces the ports that you go to. And so port apparently often sells out faster than starboard. And so starboard, generally speaking, faces the ocean. Uh, and so port sells out first. So what side of the ship is best? If you want to see where you're going, uh, the port, then you're going to want port. And if you're going to want to see more of the ocean, starboard. But of course, that's generally speaking. You can kind of figure it out based on your itinerary. So for example, I'm on the Splendor right now. We're leaving out of Long Beach and we went down to Mexico. So the ship goes out of the port and heads down. So on the port side, you're going to see the ports as you're going towards them. You're going to see Mexico, Baja California, and land as you're cruising down. But now that we're on the return trip, looking out of our balcony window, all I see is ocean, because now we're headed back north and the ship is facing the opposite direction. So, which side of the ship is best? According to this PvP Raymond, he says port, but in my personal experience, you can't really go wrong. But if you really do care a lot, um, then just kind of look at a map and, and kind of figure out, like, okay, here's the logical route you would take. And then you can kind of see which side you'll be on. You can see some of our videos and other pictures that have been posted to see how different ships dock in different ports. And sometimes it's inconsistent. I think for me, the real question of port versus starboard is going to come into whenever we get around to sailing out of New York. Because when I do that, what I want to have is a balcony that faces the Statue of Liberty when you're sailing by her. Um... So if it's like a reposition, I, I only have one shot at that. And so I want to get the correct side of the ship. And so that's probably the time where PVP or um, going someplace like Cruise Critic could come in handy, do some research, a Google search, whatever, uh, and figure out your side of the ship. But really, in our opinion, you can't go wrong. Porter starboard doesn't make a huge difference. So really, we suggest let price be your guide whenever possible so that you can go on more cruises. Not, you know, fewer cruises, but I always was on the port side. At the end of the day, what are you going to care more about? And hey, if it is the side of the ship, all the more power to you. Not really how we roll. I have uh, been part of a variety of Facebook groups over the last year and a half or so. 
And so I just want to give a quick little shout out to one of the groups, which is Small YouTubers Boost. Uh, we have, as of this recording, 23,000 small YouTubers in that group. And it's a wonderful community that gets together and supports each other through um, means that are, you know, following the rules. We're not doing things like subscribing or to each other or just watching each other's stuff to cheat the system. We're there to help inspire each other with different ideas, answer questions, provide technical expertise, collaborate, provide opportunities, information, that kind of fun stuff. And so um, that's a group that I manage. Uh, and I just wanted to give them sort of a shout out here in the podcast because they're a wonderful supportive group and they provide some of the questions that we ask here. And uh, if you are sort of a burgeoning YouTuber and you're looking for a group that can be supportive of you by providing information and these things that I mentioned, uh, I highly recommend it. It's facebook.com slash small YouTubers boost. And uh, it just has four simple rules. And uh, as long as, you know, your profile is viewable, uh, then you'll be approved to join. So uh, a funny thing happened there, though, where someone recently joined the group and started uh, messaging me and making these all, all, all these sorts of weird requests and demands. Uh, and uh, it eventually came out that the reason that they were messaging me and the reason they joined the group is they saw my Facebook profile picture and thought I was the actor David Cross. I'm not a particular fan of David Cross. Uh, I think it's maybe just the things that he tends to be in. I think he was in the Chipmunk movies and things like that. So he often plays like this slapstick villain character, uh, which I don't particularly enjoy. Um, so there's that. Um, but it was funny because once I explained that I was not this actor, uh, this person got quite upset and were like, well, at least I know you're not an actor now. And then they kind of left the group in a huff. And I just thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a weird thing, but you know, when you put yourself out there on the internet, whether it's this podcast or YouTube or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and we are almost everywhere, uh, you encounter a lot of interesting people and it's really quite surprising the places it takes you and uh, the things that you see. And so it most of it's fantastically wonderful and very supportive. And so I do want to thank each and every single one of our uh, viewers and listeners because uh, it really does mean quite a lot to us. And, uh, and your support means a lot and it keeps us going and inspires us to go out and try new things and ask important or impertinent questions and get information for you so that you can maybe save some money or have uh, a, you know an adventure you wouldn't have otherwise had, try something new, do it a little smarter, a little faster, a little different, get out of your comfort zone uh, and have a, a great adventure because a vacation impossible, our motto is no vacation is impossible. And we want to try and show you as much as we can in that regard. So uh, just, uh, you know, thanks for um, listening and, uh, you know, reaching out every time you do. Uh, when we receive emails uh, at teamvacationimpossible.ca, we receive comments on our YouTube videos. We receive, you know, a thumbs up on a YouTube video or someone subscribes. We get notifications about all of that and it's really encouraging. A lot of work does go into making these podcasts and YouTube videos and so it really feels worthwhile and it makes us feel like we're part of a community that's growing and when we hear that we've inspired someone to try something new that makes all the effort worthwhile and it's just absolutely fantastic so just uh, thank you thank you thank you for your support our YouTube channel has uh, recently surpassed 450 subscribers uh, and so I just wanted to say thank you for that and um, yeah, so it's youtube.com for slash vacation impossible if you want to check out uh, videos, including video clips of this podcast. So uh, one thing that's often discussed in some Facebook groups that we're in is uh, people complain about kids running around the ship, which is interesting. I've been on, this is my 18th cruise, 
And I've been on a lot where I've barely seen children, and I've been on a couple where there are a lot of children, and it's a little obnoxious. We record these podcasts live on the ships whenever we can, and so you might hear stomping down the hallways or kids shouting or playing that our, the microphone might pick up, do, despite our best efforts. And um, it's really minor. I don't find it to be a problem for the most part. I was on the Carnival Legend, and I saw a kid grab an unattended beer and pour it into the Lido pool. Uh, and so that particular child and the parents that were not very attentive, uh, I had kind of took exception with. Um, but other than that one very rare occurrence, that's one thing that's happened in 18 sailings. I find that, you know, it's it's a family environment and that's not the worst thing. If it encourages people to, you know, use better language or behave themselves slightly more because they're younger people around, I don't see that as a drawback personally. But that's partly just because I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff as much. Um but one of the questions or complaints that people say is like, oh, these kids running around, they got to be stopped. So let's let's take that complaint seriously. Let's think it through. Okay, they need to be stopped. Who's going to stop them? Uh, I mean, of course, you know, you want, if they're misbehaving, you would hope that the parents through good parenting, uh, you know, would teach their children, you know, the appropriate manners and behaviors, uh, you know, polite society would expect. But... Let's say that the child is, you know, not supervised at the moment for whatever reason. Who's going to stop them if not the parents? Because it's not like you can complain to Carnival to get them to do something about the parents. Because how are you even going to figure out who they are on your own? Are you expecting your cabin steward, if they hear so or see someone running down the hallways, to go chase them and physically stop them? Do we want these adult employees to be, like, physically grabbing and stopping children from running around? Is that part of their job as a cabin steward? I wouldn't think so. Um... You know, and they could they, they could say, like, oh, slow down, please. And and that's fine. And I have heard some do that, uh, particularly on Lido Deck bar service. People see kids running around and it's, you know, it's near the pool. And they say, you know, uh, please don't run or whatever. And so I think that's that's appropriate. But if we're talking about enforcing a rule that's being violated, that sounds like it's a job for security. And so it's a question of what is the role of security on the ship? And so if you want children to never be running around or being loud, then you're going to need a lot more security than they have currently. And that comes with a cost. And so that's going to drive up the cost to the cruise, ultimately, because it has to get paid by someone. It's going to be the guests, because that's how a business operates. So do you want security on every deck watching just to stop children from running around? That doesn't make sense. If they see children running around, are they supposed to grab them? How are they supposed to figure out the cabin that they're in? There's a lot of logistical problems here. And so let me just ask you this question. What if they're already doing it? What if security is already intervening and stopping the children when they see them from doing inappropriate things, when they're not tasked with something, you know, more serious? If they're breaking up a fight and a kid goes running by, I don't think there's anyone on the planet that's not in that fight that's going to want security to let the fight continue to go stop the kid from running. That doesn't make any sense. So nobody's asking for something like that. Um, and so if there's kids running around, security sees it, and they're not tied up on another task, then I've seen them intervene. I've seen it happen. It doesn't happen often. Be partly because Carnival, I think, is a very does a very good job of being discreet about these things. When Tova uh, had misplaced a ring and they were doing a cabin search, security was very discreet about it. They didn't make a big deal about it in the hallway so that all the neighbors knew what was going on. Part of it's probably to preserve our dignity as much as, you know, not interfere with other guests, not cause a scene, um, and that sort of stuff. And so, by and large, I find they do a very good job. So, I think I was on the Carnival Glory 
and I was up on the upper deck. I think I was like running laps or something. And I saw some kids climbing uh, uh, the sort of speaker awning system uh, near where they would do the uh, the dive-in movies. And if they had like a live on onboard uh, concert performance outdoors, might be there. And so there were, I, I say kids, I think they were young teenagers, and they were climbing all over it, and security was on them within like 90 seconds, they were there. And like security's down on Lido, so they had to like come uh, forward a section on the ship and get up a few decks to get to where they were and then get them down. And so they took them, they, they took them um, out of sort of out of sight, sort of behind a stair uh, a staircase, so they could talk to them without embarrassing them, which I thought was was a classy thing to do. They made them all hand over their sign and sale cards. They were taking notes. I obviously wasn't involved, so I didn't intervene beyond kind of observing what was going on around me. Um, but it seemed like they were doing what you would expect security to do. So. Uh, just because you may have encountered a few rambunctious or misbehaving kids doesn't mean that Carnival doesn't care that security's not doing anything about it. And I gotta ask, you people who complain about it on Facebook, did you tell anyone at Carnival when they had an opportunity to do something about it? You know, if you see kids, I don't know, climbing something they shouldn't, running around where they shouldn't be, do you go up to security or a guest services person or something, you know, and, and say something? You can grab any shipboard phone and call 911 for a true emergency. Kids running around is not that. But you could also grab any shipboard phone and call guest services. On the vast majority of Carnival ships, the guest services number is 7777. Pretty easy to remember. Lucky seven. Just keep dialing it until you hear something. Um, and so if you're truly concerned about this, be part of the solution. Take proactive action. Call guest services or find a staff member and I mean, I don't know that a that a bar server is going to be the right person. You're going to want to find security or uh, someone who themselves has a radio or a phone. And if you really think that it needs intervention, then you could politely bring it up that way rather than waiting until you're back on shore and complaining on a Facebook group. And, and then it suddenly becomes this hostile flame war of parents versus you know, single people or, or some version therein where people get drawn into their camps and it, and it becomes non-productive. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's my advice is if it's, if it's frustrating you, there's, there's energy there. And so use that energy for something productive to make it better, be, be, be the change that you want to see. Um, and you know, don't necessarily be, you know, passive aggressive or aggressive confrontational about it. Just be polite, respectful, and make your concerns known. And then you can, and then you can see what happens. Um, and you know, if security is unable to respond, it might be because there's something more serious going on. When Sam and I, uh, a year ago last November, were on the Carnival Breeze, we had a chance to talk to Mike Pack uh, at a Q and A session and a meet and mingle. And uh, one of our questions was, "Oh, like how often is the brig used?" And he says, "You know, there is all on pretty much every ship. There's pretty much always someone in the brig for something." And that surprises that surprised us, and it surprises a lot of the people that we tell, because you don't see it really happening. You know, you hear about these crazy brawls that somebody might catch and put up on YouTube, and you, you might hear or see the odd thing here or there, but they do a pretty good job of keeping it quiet, and that's actually a good thing. It preserves the dignity of the people who are not having the best moment in their lives in all likelihood, be they an instigator or a victim or whatever. Let's, let's preserve their dignity until we know more about what happened, um, and it doesn't interfere with everybody else having a good time. So I think that uh, Carnival Security, generally speaking, does a great job. Could they do better? Probably. But because so much of it happens out of sight, and that's a good thing, uh, it's difficult for us to judge. And so I think that it's, um, 
you know, let's stay level-headed about it because, you know, getting super upset about a vacation is something that I think needs a very serious transgression. And, you know, despite my spa rent video and the odd thing here and there that's been a problem for us like ants in our hotel room in uh, Tampa, the Hilton Garden Inn, by and large, I think, um, you know, try to see the positive. That's a big part of our message at Vacation Impossible. We've talked about it on the podcast a lot is picture the positive outcome, picture... Um, you know, yourself having a good time so that it's easier for you to realize and become that happier person and to see the benefits. Because yeah, uh, I get on the ship, there's no guy's burgers. I could be disappointed and upset about that the whole time or I could be like, hey, but that means there's cheese fries. So even in the worst of circumstances, it's, it, you know, there's positive things. And so especially when you're on vacation, this is your precious vacation time. Try to find the positive and find as much enjoyment as you can in these things. And, um, that's sort of our advice about that sort of thing. Um, one thing I want to talk about is Cruise Critic. This is the website that is um, it's owned by TripAdvisor. So TripAdvisor, if you don't know, is a website you can go to look at reviews of attractions, restaurants, and hotels. They can also help you book, but I find their price is not very competitive. Um, but they have forums that are helpful and the reviews are helpful. If you're going to stay at a hotel uh, before you book, absolutely go to TripAdvisor, find that hotel, click on the photos, but make sure you click on the traveler photos, not the like management professional photographer photos, the traveler photos, and go through those. Because if there's a bug, that's where you're going to see it. If there's some wear and tear, if there's something bad, you'll see it there. And because it's a picture and not just something an angry person wrote, you know, it's more likely to be true. So that's that, that uh, I highly recommend. It's an important tip. When, before you book a hotel, check the traveler photos on TripAdvisor. And uh, to you know pay it forward, upload your traveler photos to TripAdvisor for hotels as part of a review so that other people can see the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. So that having been said, TripAdvisor realizes that cruises are a different beast altogether. Uh, you know, we've talked about it before. The itineraries change. The ships reposition. The cruise director, the piano bar, the comedians, they're all in a constant state of flux. The staff are on six to nine month contracts. So you're not going to get the same experience going on the same ship, even if it is the same itinerary. Uh, and so it's a little harder to do that sort of, of a review. Uh, so they have uh, cruisecritic.com. They have a bunch of articles which... Uh, you know, some have value, but really it's the forums that's really quite useful. You can go in there, and we're pretty active in there. Uh, I'm Cowman. I'm active in there, happy to answer questions whenever I can, uh, particularly in the new cruiser, Ask a Cruise question, and Carnival Cruises areas is where I'm particularly active. But one thing that's been frustrating me with Cruise Critic for a while is they have this meet and mingle thing that they offer, where if at least 25 people on your sailing of a particular duration uh, sign up, there's supposed to be a private party for you guys. And I sign up for it every time. Every time we get at least 25 people, and out of the last half dozen times I've tried it, it's actually occurred once. And that was on the breeze. And so that's frustrating, because... It was great on the breeze. We had Mike Pack, the cruise director. We had the director of hotel services. Uh, and we had a couple other senior people. I think the assistant beverage manager and someone else. Um, and it was this great little, you know, it was a somewhat intimate setting of just a couple dozen people. And you had some one-on-one -on -one time where you could ask questions and you can have some snacks. And it was great. Um, and so I really wish that they would do this. And so it's been on, you know, Cruise Critic for years now, a couple of years at least. 
and they almost never seem to follow through. And people comment on Cruise Critic about it, and yet it continues, this farce. And it's frustrating and annoying. It's a minor waste of time, so it's not a big thing. But if it's something that, that I know is good when they pull it off, that, you know, I don't know how much effort it takes on their part, but if they're not going to do it, just say they're not going to do it. Uh, it would be nice if it was clear and upfront, and I find that very frustrating. And so I really think that... Um, Cruise Critic needs to decide, are we doing the meet and mingles or are we not? Uh, and, you know, if maybe they need to do it more rarely, then make it clear so that people go in with their eyes open instead of checking their mailbox constantly waiting for that invite that never comes. And so that's, that's, that's frustrating. Um, one thing that's been going on with Carnival is they have been making changes to the room service, but it's not, uh, it's not fleet wide. So... On several ships that we've been on, we've been asked on our first day, would you like AM or PM or both uh, for room turndown service? Now, I find, generally speaking, once a day is fine. Uh, and we're on the Splendor right now, and the Splendor actually hasn't made that change. They didn't ask us, and we get it twice a day. And it's nice. Um, and I think I prefer the twice a day option because... On formal nights, I would like the second turndown service because you're going to be wearing your casual stuff throughout the day. You know, you're going to be having, you know, a t-shirt and shorts and stuff like that. And then you're going to want to get into your, you know, your suit or your dress for a uh, formal night, for uh, for Cruise Elegant, for, you know, the MDR or whatever you're doing. And so you're, you might want to shave. You might want to have, a, have another shower. And so you're going to want fresh towels. So for, for, I, I, for me, I think it would be nice if they did once a day on Cruise Casual and twice a day on formal. That would be my recommendation to Carnival as a, as a healthy medium. Um, but I don't think it's a huge deal because every time I've been asked, do you want morning or night or both was also an option. So I think that uh, it's it's not a sky is falling situation. And I think that it's, you know, we, we made a video about some, some cuts that Carnival had made uh, in our first few years of cruising. And there are concerning things here and there where like, you know, the cost of bottomless bubbles is going up and other things. And there's inflationary pressure. And how Carnival deals with that really could decide their fate. Because if they cut service rather than raise prices, is that going to be the magic scenario or are they going to lose people? Alternatively, if they raise the prices too much to maintain the service level, are they going to lose people? I don't know. That's only a decision only Carnival can make. Um, but when it comes to like getting your sheets made twice a day or once a day, it's not a big deal. I think another easy solution, if Carnival doesn't want to follow my suggestion of once a day on casual and twice a day on formal nights, just give us a lot more towels because that's really what it boils down to. Um, you know, uh, just uh, stack us up with towels so that there's at least two full-size towels for each person in the cabin at every turndown service, and then you turn it down once a day. I'm fine with that. I would have. There's nothing more that I could want more than that. And having my bed made twice in a day does nothing for me. It doesn't make the bed more enjoyable. Uh, you know, so uh, I'm I'm fine with that particular change. But uh, it ha it hasn't rolled out fleet wide yet, and it's been a while. So they, I don't know if they're pursuing it, or maybe each ship is deciding for themselves what's appropriate. Um, so as a Canadian cruiser, a Canadian international traveler, uh, one thing that you need to kind of be aware of is currency conversion fees. There's the rate your currency converts at. That's one thing. That's a separate matter. But then there's fees potentially tacked on top of that. So my advice to Canadians out there is check your credit cards to see if you're being charged a foreign currency conversion fee. It could be as high as 
and it might not be easy to find out. When I went uh, for my Scotiabank visa, trying to determine if I had that fee, I had to go through the cardholder agreement that uh, linked to a secondary agreement that linked to a tertiary document where I was finally able to find the percentage. And then later I tested the percentage and it was functionally a little higher. So what happened a couple years ago when I became aware of this is I got myself a, um, an Amazon visa because it had no foreign currency conversion. And so what I did was the day I got it, I was like, I'm going to test it out because it was so hard to find this information. I want to verify independently what's going on. So I put a $50 charge on a pending cruise through on my old visa and one on this new Amazon visa. And despite the card, the, the, the tertiary agreement, um, my Scotiabank visa came through it. Uh, the agreement said it was 2.7% conversion fee but there was a 3% difference. So there might have been some rounding going on there. 3% difference is substantial if you consider it. If you're paying off a $3,000 cruise, 3% of that, that becomes substantial over time. And then if you tack on other things like your hotel and restaurants and taxis and Ubers, et cetera, et cetera, that adds up. And so they've recently announced the end of the Amazon Visa. Uh, Chase is the bank that was uh, supporting this visa card and so they're ending operations in Canada it seems and so they're closing on all their accounts as of the uh, middle of March of course if you haven't paid off your balance by then you can still pay it they're gonna get their money don't you worry um, but no longer will you be able to charge things after the 15th and obviously people can't sign up for those cards anymore and so there's a variety of them out there Sam had a, a different one that wasn't through Amazon but it was also run by Chase so his was getting shut down as well so um, we're, you know, people are scrambling to find an alternative. So I have a recommendation for you, and it is the Home Trust Visa. If you Google that, you should be able to find it. Home Trust, I believe, is a mortgage company, but they offer a visa independently of their other services, so you can sign up just for the visa card. You sign up online. The process is pretty simple. It asks you uh, largely multiple choice questions about uh, you know, your, your, where you've lived and employment and things of that nature, things that they would have from your credit record. Um, the approval process is very slow, though. From the moment that I uh, approve, uh, I, I completed my online application to card in hand was exactly one month. Uh, and the thing about it is a month isn't that bad, but there's virtually no communication through that. So you complete your on online application and it doesn't really tell you if you were accepted or not. It gives you like a tracking number or something and nothing much more than that and confirmation code or something. Uh, but there's no communication. You provide your email, they never email you. It's not until you receive your PIN uh, in a separate mailing a few days in advance of the card that you realize, oh, I got approved. Okay. So the process isn't the greatest. Um, and I think the card is designed for people of a particular credit rating range. So you might not get the largest uh, initial balance approved. Um, but for me, it was sufficient for my needs. And I don't like having a really high available balance on my credit card anyways, because that's like a liability to me if it you know, were to go missing, be stolen or something. Now, generally speaking, all these banks and credit cards, they say they'll cover you for loss, but there's the odd story you hear where they haven't. And so I just, I just don't like that risk. And so the fact that it's a lower uh, um, available credit limit, I'm okay with. But it's, it's enough to cover these sorts of you know, cruising activities and, and trips, especially if you pay for things in advance so you stagger when you're paying. 
so the home trust visa is a good option for Canadians who don't want to play foreign currency conversion fees. And once again, I've tested this. I took my old Scotiabank, my old Amazon visa, and my new home trust visa, and in one transaction made a payment on my June cruise. $50, $50, $50 to each card. And this time it was all part of one transaction because you can do multiple credit card payments now. So I put $50 on each one. And sure enough, the Amazon Visa and the Home Trust converted at the exact same rate, and it was exactly 3% less than the Scotiabank Visa. So there's not a lot of good options, unfortunately, for Canadians that want credit cards where they don't pay foreign currency conversions. There's some out there, there's a Rogers Visa that plays a game where they give you 4% cash back, but then they charge you the currency conversion, so you kind of come out ahead. You can look into that if that works for you. I believe that's only if you're a Rogers customer because the cash back ends up a credit on your cell phone bill. I'm not a Rogers cellular customer, so it doesn't make sense for me. And I don't like playing those games where we'll take your money, but we'll give you money, but we'll, and because then all they have to do is tweak those things in the future, possibly without the greatest notification to you, and suddenly you're, you're paying again. And the Home Trust Visa has no annual fee. And you get cash back, you get roadside assistance, a variety of things. I highly recommend if you're a Canadian traveler that you look into the Home Trust Visa because odds are if that isn't what you have, you're paying 3%, up to 3% more on your foreign currency transactions. And that's, that's a 3% tax on everything that you don't need to be paying. So avoid it, is my advice. Home Trust Visa... It requires some patience, but it's worth looking into. So another thing I want to talk about is uh, this that was uh, an interesting experience over the last little while was uh, the big changes over at YouTube. Uh, YouTube made a change to their monetization policy a year ago, April, where they said that you had to have 10,000 lifetime channel-wide views in order to be monetized. We already had it, so that didn't affect us very much. A few people out there who didn't have it particularly in this Facebook group I manage of 23,000 small YouTubers, you know, they struggled to, you know, get there. And, and they largely were able to. They found it aspirational. It inspired them to work a little harder, promote their videos a little bit better, make, the, make better thumbnails, make more videos, put them out more consistently. Different things. They all take, took different approaches and inspired them to do more. Now, around about the same time, we did decide to monetize the channel, uh, partly because we were wondering... Do monetized videos appear higher in suggested videos, up next videos, and search results on YouTube? And the YouTube algorithm that decides these things is not well understood. It's a big corporate secret for reasons that make a certain degree of sense. And so what we did is I monetized 25% of our videos. And how did I determine what videos would be monetized and what wouldn't? What I did was I would love it for our audience to be able to receive our content free of ads. So if you can have an ad-free alternative to get our content, then we would put an ad on one of the methods. For example, if you're listening to this podcast on Podbean or your platform of choice, you're not hearing any ads. Our podcast is ad-free. We have no sponsors, although maybe one day we might consider that. But at this time, our podcast is completely ad-free, and it doesn't cost anything. And we're happy to provide this uh, as a free service to you. So when we take a clip of this podcast and put it up on YouTube, we would put an ad on that. Or if we turn it into a travel tip video, or and we do that with our tip videos sometimes. Sometimes they're little snippets from larger videos that just have a quick little tip that we thought would be nice for people to just get to the point right away. So we'll put an ad on that, like a little banner ad on the bottom. Because we want it to be quick, we wouldn't put a, you know, a commercial at the beginning. 
so we did that and you know it was it was rolling along just fine and then in january of 2018 youtube made another change to the monetization policy where they now require 4000 hours of watch time and 1000 subscribers in order to monetize your channel now, through the uproar that this created, they did provide a little bit more information and they did finally publicly state that a monetized video does not get treated any differently than a non-monetized video in search, up next videos, and recommended videos. So that was nice um, because also the information and data analytics I was getting on my experiment wasn't consistent. So I believe them in this. But they could change that at any time, as they are wont to do. YouTube has had a history of changing things. In 2010, prior to 2010, they valued views above all else. If people were watching your stuff, then you were a success. And media has a bias towards success. Uh, uh, you know, businesses do. It may it make sense. You want to promote and, uh, you know, and uh, in, enjoy and have synergy with successes. It makes some sense. But in 2010, they decided that watch time was the king metric of all. It wasn't so much about views anymore. So it's about how much time is somebody spending watching your content. And it changed the face of YouTube. It changed the landscape. It gave rise to Let's Players like PewDiePie and DanTDM and other people, uh, for good or ill, who, you know, if they put out a long play video of a video game that's maybe two hours, let's say, and somebody watches that whole two hour video, versus somebody watching a travel tip video that's maybe two minutes, they would value that two hour gameplay over the two minute tip video. Now, the question is the audience, is that the same value to the audience? I don't know, two hours of entertainment is pretty good, but a two, hour, a two minute tip video that saves you money is pretty good too. It's really hard to measure these things against each other. And so YouTube decided to go with that metric and that led to the death of quite a few channels. There were channels out there that were teaching people the proper definitions of words, uh, teaching about different cultures and things like that, but they were in shorter videos. Bite-sized snippets was a way that a lot of people wanted to learn, and they found it accessible and entertaining, and those channels fell out of favor, and they weren't recommended as much. They didn't come up high, as high in search, and so those faded while the Let's Players and the Daily Vloggers started to become more successful. And over time, YouTube has tweaked and valued different things, and they've not always been upfront about it. They like interactions, thumbs up, thumbs down, comments, subscriptions, things like that. Um, and they do value those things. So please, if you're on YouTube and you're watching our videos, if you find some value, please give it a thumbs up, because for one thing, that's how other people can help find the videos. It sounds a little silly. It sounds like we're asking for, you know, oh, please, please clap for us. Please applaud for us and tell us we're doing a good job, which, hey, those things are great. But really, it's not about that. It's about making it easier for other people to find our videos, too. If you found it useful by you commenting, by you clicking thumbs up, by you subscribing to the channel, you'll help us appear higher in search results. It's weird, but it's how it works. And so if you think that this has value, please, please do that. And then hopefully other people will get the same value you did. And we can all just spread it uh, around and pay it forward uh, and, and maybe even uh, grow a bit of a community here. Or at the very least, you know, if we give you a tip that's helpful, it could help somebody else. So help us help them is, is what we're asking for there. But getting back to this particular change, these... Um, metrics are really high. Uh, when they announced it, we had 88% of the watch time required and something like 30 some odd percent of the needed subscribers. And they gave about a month for people to meet these thresholds before they were removed from the program. Now, my reaction was an emotional one. I didn't like it. I felt like something was being taken away from me. 
Um, I, I don't really care about monetization. I'm not in it to make money. If we did, it'd be fantastic, but it's not why we're here by any means. And I don't want to bombard you with ads. I never want to do that. And if I had to choose between keeping things ad-free and making money, that'd be a really hard choice. I'd probably go ad-free as much as I can. So what happened? They were taking something away from me that I had earned. You go through a process. There were problems with our monetization application. I had to contact YouTube because it was a glitch on their side that froze our application at an intermediary step. So I put some time and effort into this. And then I went through and I decided which video gets what kind of ads and which doesn't. And so it was part of our culture here at Vacation Impossible, part of our identity, is that, you know, we were, we were you know, about providing you at least one way to get our content ad-free. And I thought that was a pretty good example that I was trying to, you know, lead by example for others. Because, you know, you click on some video and you see that they've got like 10 different ads that'll pop up throughout. You know, banner ads aren't so bad, but those, those, those mid-roll commercials can be very irritating. Can, they can impede the flow of a video and stuff like that. And I'll launch a video and I'll, you know, you, get, you look on the timeline, you see the little yellow lines, it tells you where the ads pop up. You see a bunch of them and I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I want to sit through that. I don't want to be that guy. I want to show them that there's a way to be successful, hopefully, without going to that lowest common denominator. And so it was frustrating and it felt a little challenge accepted. You know, it was like, well, all right, you're going to set a bar high. I'm going to try, I'm going to clear it. I'm going to try and clear it. But looking at our numbers, I knew there was no way we could make it. We were at 88% of the watch time and like 33% of the subscribers. And I knew we could get the watch time probably there if we really push really hard. And I committed myself to it. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do that. And so in the end, we were at about 98% of the watch time and like 45% of the needed subscribers when the deadline came and we just, we, we failed. We didn't make it. It was mission failed. Um, but I can honestly say I did absolutely everything that I could think of. Um, I put out a video every single day for a month. Um, YouTube, because of their focus on watch time, I did admittedly edit them a little less heavily uh, so that there would be more content to watch and I could get it out more quickly. Um, and I was promoting things as much as possible on you know social media and Reddit. Uh, and members of the media, a couple of reporters actually took note of what was going on and my efforts. I was contacted by a reporter from the Daily Beast, where I provided an, uh, an interview over Facebook Messenger. I was contacted by a reporter with Canadian Press, and I did a phone interview and follow-up questions on Twitter. I was contacted by a reporter at a university in Canada that I provided an interview for. The first two resulted in articles being printed. I think the third one never got, got wrote because they never contacted me. They said they would let me know when the article was done, and they never did. But um, So it was an article on the Daily Beast, and there was an article that was printed in digital um, media across Canada, coast to coast to coast. Um, like our local radio stations and newspapers all picked it up for their online content. I never saw it in print, but I only was able to check so many printed things. Uh, and so it talked about our channel, and it talked about what was going on, um, and so like, I got, I got my name in the papers. I got a channel in the papers. I got, I did all this stuff and I still wasn't able to clear that threshold. And so it feels like it was a threshold set so high as to be discouraging. Now I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm not going to let it discourage me. But in this group of, that I run of 23,000 small YouTubers, there was a lot of discouragement. A lot of people were going to give up. A lot of people were going to try and find a new platform. Some people were going to change up their content so drastically as to make it nothing like what they wanted to be making. 
you know, one of the things that YouTube has come out and said over the years is that they value, you know, frequency of uh, content. So if you get a video out every day, then you're going to appear higher in those search results and those recommended videos. Uh, and so if you're a daily vlogger, if you sit at home in front of a camera, uh, you have an advantage because you can get a video out every day with a little bit of editing. And hey, there's some people who do that fantastically well. I mean, he's a big fan of Philly D, for example, and I've seen some of his stuff and it's fantastic. Um, but it's it's like they're picking winners and losers in this intellectual economy. Because if you're like us, where we only record the podcast when on location, it's one of the things that I like to think make, makes us unique. We, I'm on the Splendor right now in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I'm recording and talking uh, for you people. Uh, and I'm not just doing it at home because I had an idea. Uh, and so I'm trying to show you different things. We're trying to be unique in that regard, and that YouTube is not in favor of that approach. So one of the ways I explained it to the reporters is that Let's compare a couple of possible channel types, all right? On one hand, you've got uh, a daily vlogger and a let's player. That's somebody who plays video games and records it. On the other hand, you've got an animator uh, or, no, let's say a travel channel and a do-it-yourself on the other hand. So if you have a long video, like a let's player, and it's personality-driven, it's all about the angry video game nerd getting mad as he's playing a game or something like that, uh, although most of his stuff isn't let's plays, but something like that. Uh, then it's about the personality, so you're more likely to subscribe, and it's it's longer content, longer form. So they're getting the subscribers and their watch time. That is a YouTube darling right there. If you're a daily vlogger and you're producing a video every single day, and it's and it's you, it's about you and your personality, your take on things, your life, uh, then they're more likely to subscribe because they want more of that personality. And you know you're getting a video out every day. There's a lot of watch time you can get that way. But let's say you're a do-it-yourself channel and uh, you're, you're showing someone how to fix their sink. That's hugely useful. You could be saving them thousands of dollars potentially and tons of stress and frustration. You're adding huge value to that person. But if the video only takes two to five minutes, you're not getting as much watch time. And that person isn't necessarily going to subscribe to you because they came and they had a question. How do I fix my sink? They got an answer and they move on. But it was, it was hugely valuable to them. Um, but there's no point in subscribing because if tomorrow you're showing them how to install a garage door opener and they don't have a garage, that doesn't add value to them. Similarly, if you're like us and you're a travel channel and let's say that you're going to Alaska and you search how, what, how to dress for Alaska because that's one of our more popular videos and we've I think we've, we've helped uh, something like 17,000 people figure out how to dress for their Alaska vacation. That's fantastic. And I think it provided value to those people and I feel really good about that. But... If the next episode, the next video we put out, we're hanging out in Mexico and they've got no plans to go to Mexico, is that going to have as much value to them? I mean, hopefully we present these things in an entertaining way, but you can see how we're at a disadvantage because it's not about us so much as it's about the information. I mean, you know, yeah, we show us, we have fun and we try to entertain you and try to be, you know, funny and stuff, but we're, we're largely trying to show you the world and not everyone is interested in everything we're going to go see and do. Alternatively, let's say you're an animator. And you're making two to three minute animated videos, but you're working on your own in your free time, you know, at home. If you can get a video like that out once a month, then like you're a hero. If you can do it once a week, you're a superhero. Daily is straight out impossible. In fact, if you had an animation studio, you could go to Illumination or Pixar and tell them they've got to put out a video every day. They couldn't do it. It wouldn't work. 
That doesn't mean the stuff that Illumination and Pixar is putting out isn't of high quality that people get value of. But YouTube is picking winners and losers. And that kind of sucks. What I'm saying is, is that I think what YouTube is doing is actually a lot like the, uh, the net neutrality fight, oddly. Uh, it just occurred to me recently. But uh, net neutrality is about not letting large companies pick winners and losers in the economy. And that's what YouTube is doing. By favoring long-form personality-driven content, they are effectively picking you know, uh, a side, a type of content that they are going to promote and show successful, and they're going to hide functionally everything else. Now, it's being done through the guise of an algorithm. It's not a person or a company necessarily that's deciding these things. It's a computer program, and so we seem to have divorced the personal side of things from this. But it's basically the same thing. If one day Comcast decides that they don't like MSNBC and they're not going to let you see their website, you know, uh, at an appropriate speed, that's is that any different from YouTube deciding that short videos are not going to show up in search results? Is it that different? You can draw a moral line from the Comcast example, uh, and maybe less so with YouTube, but also there have been some experiments done recently by people who went and they watched a video on YouTube that was like a political rally, and then they had the autoplay continue, The they'd show the up next video, the up next video, and they let it go for hours, and it would take them to more and more extremist content, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're on. And so the current algorithm seems to favor extremism. Now imagine if Comcast came, was it was pointed out that Comcast was making extremist websites go faster than mainstream news. That would be like front page news on the other news sites, and there would be an uproar and people would be upset. But it's happening and it's provable on YouTube right now, and people aren't too concerned about it. So that's uh, that's just something that we want to put out there. So uh, if you want to help our content show up in search results you know, please do click like and let us know and let us know which videos you enjoy because if we get a lot more likes on one video versus another, we might decide to make more of that kind of content. Do you want us to be talking about the cost of cruises or do you want to see us parasailing? What do you want to see? Uh, and so comment, ask questions, interact with us. Uh, you know, that also, oddly, it's not about an ego exercise. It's about improving the visibility of our videos because those sorts of interactions do help things show up higher in the search results and so as well um, please do subscribe because that that is all part of the the metrics that allow uh, videos to be found on YouTube so um, we're kinda late to the party on this one because uh, it happened twice uh, over the last uh, while but uh, the US government did face a shutdown um, once of a few days and once of a few hours recently and so there are travel implications for when that sort of thing happens. And so I just wanted to touch on it. Uh, I don't know that there's currently um, the stage set for it to happen again soon, but it's important to note that, um, for example, TSA uh, furloughs about 17% of their staff when there is a government shutdown. So if there's a government shutdown, you need to plan more time at the airport. Also, certain national parks, depending on the nature of the shutdown and how things are funded, get shut down. And that is resulted in one of our better trips, oddly. We were planning to go to the South Rim of the Grand Canyon years ago, and there was a government shutdown under Obama. And so the park was shut down. We ended up going to the West Rim, which had the Skywalk, and ended up being a fantastic uh, experience because it wasn't run by the, the, uh, the government. 
So this is just a quick note as sort of a reminder that some people think that like, you know, politics doesn't matter as it relates to travel, but sometimes there is that overlap. And in particular, a U.S. government shutdown does impact travelers. It can make for longer border waits and it can shut down tourist attractions. So um, next time you hear talk of a government shutdown, check your calendar to see if you've got a vacation coming because that could be important. So one thing that we're asked about sometimes is what are the unique challenges of being a Canadian podcaster and YouTuber? And uh, it's difficult to say um, because we are, the, Canada has one-tenth the population of the United States. So we're next to this giant potential audience, but also this giant pool of competition. And they might already have a bit of a built-in audience. And so I think it's, it's difficult um, to sort of be next to this huge... Uh, content creation source and that we you know we do have unique stories to tell uh, in this podcast for example I covered the the issues with foreign currency conversion fees I don't think that's an, as big of an issue in the United States for example um, most American credit cards don't charge that because uh, a much smaller percentage of US citizens travel than Canadians so there's less money to be made there so they don't generally tack on that fee as often so you know it's uh, it, it is a challenge in that regard um, and we want to try and show things from a Canadian perspective perspective and we really hope that doesn't turn off potential American Australian European audiences but we do think that every now and then the Canadian perspective does give us a unique story to tell and we're going to tell it uh, I've recently was looking at a study that was done of Canadian podcast audiences and Canadians are um, they're big consumers of podcasts they love podcasts they listen a lot and sort of more than your average uh, sort of world citizen but apparently they are clamoring for more Canadian content and so uh, that's definitely something that we want to try and provide is uh, sort of a Canadian perspective. And so once again, we realize the odds are somewhat stacked against us in this regard. But um, if we were to do what everyone else does and not be unique in any way, then I think at best we'd just be a bad copy. So we want to be something unique and original. That's why we only do podcasts on location, for example, and that's why we're going to speak to the Canadian experience whenever we think it's got a unique story to tell. And uh, if that means that we're climbing up a steeper hill, then uh, it'll be all the sweeter if we ever do climb up that hill. So uh, if you want to support Canadian podcast and YouTube content, uh, sharing our uh, podcast and YouTube channel would be a fantastic way to, uh, to help at least uh, this small group do exactly that. So tied into that is, you know, why do we do this? Why do we uh, make these videos on YouTube? Why do we record this podcast? So I guess it gets into a bit of our origin story. So our origin story is, uh, I think it's a unique one. There's a lot of different um, channels and podcasts out there, and I don't know that anyone got into it for the same reasons that we did. Basically, uh, when I was young, my family was poor. We were on uh, government assistance and in social housing in different parts of uh, my formative years. And through the power of education, through, you know, university and stuff, I was able to break the cycle of poverty in my family. And uh, a lot of my friends went through a similar experience. So it was getting to a point where I was starting to have some disposable income and I wanted to go and see the world. And convincing my friends to go with me was hard. They didn't see the value in spending the money. It's been said that travel's the one thing that when you spend money on, it makes you richer. And I believe in that, but my friends didn't quite see it. And so I started filming videos in 2001, long before YouTube was even a thing, because I wanted to show them what was out there. 
and convince them to come and check it out with me and come and have a fun time and also show them that it didn't have to break the bank. It didn't have to take all of this new disposable income that they were finding. So that's really why I started getting into it uh, was just to convince my friends and family to come travel with me. And then when things like YouTube came along and I was able to share our videos with a wider audience, it was uh, fascinating and, and, and really just mind-blowing the response we got from some people. Some people would comment on a video and say, oh, I never knew that this was a thing. I'm going to go check this out. Or, you know, oh, you just saved me a bunch of money by telling me about this, this trick that you used or something like that. And so we've basically been trying to take this format to a broader audience because it seems to be working for some people and so why do we do it we want we want to show you that the world is something worth seeing we want to show you that travel broadens the mind and the money you spend on travel is an investment it's not a waste but we also want to show you how to spend as much time enjoying yourself as possible so you know if you're going on a cruise watch our video that shows you how your room key works before you go so you don't waste that time figuring it out and you can maximize the fun you'll have on vacation and hopefully we can provide you some tips on how to save some money you know whether it's getting the right credit card or booking the cruise for the right time of year whatever it is uh, so that you can do it more cheaply and then maybe do it more if you want and uh, if we can show you something cool that you didn't know was out there, if you didn't know that there was a water slide that went through a shark tank in Atlantis, and our video shows you that, and you decide you want to go try that, then that's fantastic for us. That That is absolutely why we put in this effort. So... That's it for this uh, edition of the Vacation Impossible podcast. Please check us out on our various social media platforms, uh, particularly YouTube, where you can see video clips of this and other podcasts. YouTube.com forward slash Vacation Impossible. We're also on Twitter, at Vacay Impossible. We're on Instagram, where you can see some of the amazing pictures we take. In fact, we just recently posted uh, this amazing picture of the, sun the sunset in Cabo San Lucas, uh, which is worth checking out. So go to Instagram and and our username is Vacation Impossible. We've got a Tumblr blog where we talk about travel, YouTube, and we also uh, notify people when new videos come out. And that's vacationimpossible.tumblr.com. And if you want to email us to uh, send us a question or complaint or compliment, whatever you got, uh, we'd love to hear from you. It's team at vacationimpossible.ca. And uh, please subscribe to this podcast. Give it a review and a like on uh, whatever platform you're listening to this on. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, a lot of apps that you can listen to um, podcasts on. We are on. Uh, so uh, do please subscribe. And if you're able to review, that would be fantastic. We appreciate uh, you tuning in. And uh, we uh, look forward to talking to you again, hopefully later, coming at you from Victoria, B.C., Canada. Thanks for listening.